Kevin Markwick. May we remind you that for the convenience of those patrons who prefer not to smoke, seating areas on the right-hand side of this auditorium have been designated as no-smoking areas. Your cooperation is appreciated. town ain't big enough for the both of us sparks from 1974 i had that on a ktel album you know one of those biggest wonking great hits ever thing long before the um the other ones came out you know now that's what i call whatever hello it's kevin markwick it's monday night it's uckfield fm if you've made it to this far 
Well done you. We're at 1974 already. What a year it wasn't. In our trawl through cinema, through the worm's eye view of a provincial cinema. Ah, mine. Here in Uckfield, the picture house. And the wider view of a film nut like me. So, 1974, Bagpuss started. Harold Wilson became Prime Minister for the second time after Ted Heath resigned. The Eurovision Song Contest was held in Brighton at the Dome. Uh, Abba go on and win it with Waterloo. You know that. Leeds win the league. Sir Alf gets sacked. But he won us the World Cup. Tom Baker became the new Doctor Who. CFAX started. Still miss that. And McDonald's opened their first UK site in Woolwich, South East London. Now, in the cinema, you may remember last week back in 1973, uh, we hit a low of 134 million admissions. Uh, in 1974, it actually went up a wee bit to 138 million admissions. What's four million admissions between friends? Uh, although it wouldn't do us uh, much good, to be honest, because <laughs> it dove even more through the floor the next year when the rot would really set in is dove a word i'm not entirely sure anyway in the cinema 1974 it was the year of kung fu uh, and uckfield wasn't immune to the craze either so here is enter the dragon <laughs> Ha! <laughs> 
Oh, yes. Lalo. Lalo. Lalo? Schifrin's dramatic score for Enter the Dragon, the first kung fu film by a major American studio and sadly the last to be completed by its star Bruce Lee, who would die before it was released at the age of only 32. Uh, and it was only Lee's fourth film, actually, I believe. Uh, that may not be entirely true, because he had a, a bit parts in other films. But it was his fourth starring film. There you go. Uh, he'd become a martial arts star making films in Hong Kong, all of which played in Uckfield over the next 12 months. And then again regularly for the next few years. The prints uh, steadily getting worse. They were in ribbons, actually. By the end of the 70s, there were so many joins and the ends of the reels were so knackered that, uh, yeah, it was like watching it through rain most of the time. Quite difficult to keep on the screen sometimes. Uh, anyway, he'd become uh, a martial arts star, as I say, making films in Hong Kong. Uh, and then again, regularly... Um, yes, <laughs> I'm reading the same sentence twice. <gasps> for the next few years. The Prince getting steadily was... I've read that already. Anyway, Fist of Fury played for the first time in March... Uh, the Big Boss played in May and Way of the Dragon in August. So that was like a full house for Bruce Lee. Uh, Enter the Dragon played seven days, February the 3rd, having been released in the UK in January 1974 and garnered a very healthy 1,347 admissions. Uh, and uh, if you've been following the show at all, you'll know that Sunday was the biggest day of the week at this time. And actually 409 of those admissions were on the Sunday. So the Herberts, as we used to call them, liked a bit of Kung Fu. So you're listening to Kevin Markwick. Uh, it's Upfield FM on a Monday night. I'm taking you through the 1970s week by week. And uh, well, we're on show five. This is 1974. Um, funny old year. Uh, nothing massively huge um, to report, really. Uh, some good films. A couple of classics. I think the big classics from 74, if you're doing the Wikipedia thing, weren't released until 75 in the UK. So we'll cover a lot of those next week. But do get in touch. Let me know what you think of the show. If you listen to the podcast, that would be great. Have a listen. Thank you for downloading. Um, and let me know what you think. You can hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Markwick. Uh, you can email the studio at fm at alfieldfm.co.uk. Uh, I've had a bit of a tidy up on the Facebook page. Uh, I need to decorate a bit, but it's looking a lot tidier now. Uh, there's probably one too many pictures of my mug <laughs> staring out at you. Anyway, uh, change of pace now and something altogether more pastoral. The rather nice music from the very English story uh, of the Bellstone Fox. Uh, not a film you hear much about these days. Uh, the story of a fox cub raised in captivity that became an obsession with the huntsman who uh, initially raised him, played by Eric Porter. And actually, he eventually dies trying to catch him. Spoiler alert. OK, but the music was rather nice. Here we go.
Quite pleasant, I'd say. Uh, Laurie Johnson's score for the uh, pretty much forgotten Bellstone Fox now. Um, it played on January the 27th for seven days, 1,387 admissions. Uh, 488 on the Saturday. Now, consider this. This is more admissions than Enter the Dragon. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, pretty much the same around here. Um, men with their uh, underpants on over their trousers, not much cop. Judy Dench as a queen will beat Marvel hands down in these parts. So, a film you probably never have heard of beat one of the biggest grossing films of the year. But that's Upfield for you. Funny old town. OK, we'll have a break, and when we come back, some more gratuitous violence. My favourite. Get with it, young man, get in the swing All the ice cream is that cool zing So make the evening a regular ball Get the refreshment that's got it all Cool man, like ice cream Get yours now You think he's gone? He's not gone! That's the whole point! He's never gone! OK, you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Monday night. We're going through 1974 already. Uh, and we, I promised you a bit of gratuitous violence. So here we go. And not only that, more Lalo Schifrin. Thank you. 
clearly Lalo, Lalo, Schifrin was the go-to guy in the very early 70s. Um, so that's the second uh, thing we've had from him tonight. That's uh, part of his score for Magnum Force, um, the second in the Dirty Harry pictures. Dirty Harry was such a success for Clint Eastwood, he clearly felt there was mileage in the character of the plain-speaking maverick detective Harry Callahan. So he made more. Um, of course, this was in the days before we used that rather soulless phrase, franchise. Um, this time he's on the trail of a bunch of vigilante cops. I seem to remember David Soul was one of them. Um, I haven't seen it in Yonks, but I do remember it being very violent. Um, the pimp murdering the hooker by forcing her to drink drain cleaner being a moment that sticks out. Eww. Either way, it became the sixth highest grossing film of the year. No Don Siegel directing this time. Um, that duty was uh, carried out by Hang'em High director Ted Post. Hang'em High obviously had been um, one of Clint Eastwood's early westerns that he made when he got back from Italy after, I think it was, was it his first western after um, the Dollars movies? Possibly. I don't know. Uh, here's something a bit odd now. Um, a Touch of Class. idea music by john cameron from the romantic comedy which is apparently british i didn't realize it was a british film directed by melvin frank called a touch of class which had actually played in uckfield back in november 1973 to fairly ordinary business but then early in 1974 Glenda Jackson won the Oscar for Best Actress in the film and it doubled the amount of business it had done five months previously. Uh, playing on April the 30th, 1974, for five days, 925 admissions. Uh, of course, that couldn't happen today as you would have already had it in your house <laughs> by that point. Um, yes, and actually, we really are on the verge of a shockingly difficult time for cinema owners. Uh, and you can see from looking at the book which I've been doing, uh, we're having to fall back on an enormous amount of old product at this time. Uh, now, whether that's because the, stuff, the new stuff he didn't like the look of or um, it just wasn't anything worth playing, I don't know. And whilst it might be fun to look back at these films, it didn't bode well for the future. 
The lack of investment in UK cinemas was beginning to really tell and the big circuits would go on letting the side down for a good few years yet. Um, they would convert their drafty 2,000-seat barns into horrible little orange-painted cubes with postage-stamped screens uh, and repurposing the 50-year-old seats. Uh, is it any wonder people would rather have stayed at home? Uh, as an independent in these times, it was difficult to know what to do. I have no idea what my father was thinking. I do know his less-than-super-smart accountant <laughs> gave him the advice to get the hell out of the cinema business in the mid-70s. Oh. Which actually, funnily enough, would ultimately lead him to invest heavily in the cinema arc field to keep us afloat. You'll have to wait until uh, 1977 for that story, though. So... To illustrate the situation of dodgy product and a suburban cinema, we can look at Easter 1974, two weeks of the Easter holidays. Not a single new film played for the two weeks. Um, the first week was good, a rerun of Bedknobs and Broomsticks from 1971, uh, 1,156 submissions in five days. And then he had to be kind of smart for the second week. Three days on airport and two mules for Sister Sarah, which we've covered before, with matinees on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And then four days, <laughs> four whole days, on uh, the Italian job and Monte Carlo or bust. <laughs> Out of jalopy and polish the wheels She's gotta be the smallest of the automobile Polish the paint white and clean off the rust They won't see our chassis for dust And when we arrive miles ahead of the rest Everyone will know that our jalopy is best They'll have to admit she's a car you can trust So it's not to call the war bus Monte, the Monte. Uh, Jimmy Durante and the song from Monte Carlo or Bust, a film I adored as a child. Uh, it was an attempt to do the um, 
those magnificent men in their flying machines, only in cars this time. Actually, in the US it was called those daring young men in their jaunty jalopies. Nah. <laughs> Tony Curtis, Susan Hampshire and the wonderful Terry Thomas, among a host of other famous comedians of the time. Gert Frobe. Um, there were loads. They were all in it. Uh, and remember, we're playing this as one of the main Easter holiday films for Easter 1974, despite it having been released in 1969, five years earlier. Uh, it would play that week with The Italian Job. It was a kind of... Uh, quite often uh, coupled up with uh, Monte Carlo. Uh, also from 1969. And actually an almost permanent fixture in Upfield in the 1970s. So... All of those films added together gave us a total for the week of 1,831 admissions. Not bad at all. He really knew how to put it out of the hat sometimes. Nice one, Dad.
Yes, <laughs> it's caper time by Quincy Jones from the Italian Job. Ah,、uh, you know every quote from that film. That was another one with a prince that got just got so ropey.、Um, you know, it would continue to play all the way through the seventies. If he got stuck, bung in the Italian Job. <laughs> Or bung in blazing saddles, which we'll come to later.、Uh, it's been a constant in my life, not just because we love it, but because it always put food on the table. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that Suncrush, your favourite orange drink, is in this cinema now? It's in a lovely container you can see through, so you know when it's time to buy some more. Ha ha! Suncrush is on sale now.
David Bowie, Rebel Rebel, uh, to give you a flavour of 1974. From the album Diamond Dogs, of course. You're listening to uh, the Kevin Markwick Show on Uckfield FM. It's 1974 in our weekly trawl through the cinema of the 1970s. As told uh, from, well, my perspective, really. It's the only perspective I know. Which is probably why I fail. <laughs> um... What was I doing in 19... I was at school, wasn't I? Obviously, OBS. I was 12. I was coming up for 12. I'd have been 12 in the October, so I was at 11. Was I in the first year at Upfield? The second year? I don't know. Anyway, a massive worldwide hit and the biggest film of the year in Upfield in 1974-ish. <laughs> the big-ish. The most biggest-ish film of the year in Upfield in 74. There weren't holdovers in those days. You didn't keep films going, so they didn't rack up kind of results like they do now. You know, I can look at the thing this year and I can say, our biggest film of the year is Mamma Mia, here we go again, because it ran for nifty nuff weeks and it took this kind of money and Darkest Hour is number two, but we didn't really think in those terms in the 1970s. A film played for a week and it was gone, and then if it was any good, it came back later wholly different thing um we'll exp i'll explain about holdovers and stuff like that uh, probably in another show anyway one of the bigger films uh of 1974 was george roy hill's film the sting released in december 73 in the west end it played in uckfield for 14 days on may the 5th 1974 14 days again clearly things had shifted no, no more of this 13 days, you know, separate Sunday thing going on. Perhaps the renters put their foot down, I don't know. Anyway, it totaled 3,144 admissions over the two weeks. I do remember sitting through it at the time. Uh, I'm not sure I follow, uh, fully followed what was going on, though.
the entertainer from The Sting, uh, which I sat through again last night. I fancy watching it again. Um, I've been trying to watch films as we've been covering them, you know, the last few weeks, but some of them are really difficult to find, and apart from the really obvious ones, which I remember really, really well. Um, but it's sometimes be nice to go back and watch to, to sort of remind me a bit, because not only do I have the memory of a goldfish, it was 40 years ago. <laughs> Actually, I saw quite a lot of them more recently than that, if we're honest. Anyway, not only was The Sting a massive hit, it also introduced the Scott Joplin uh, music and his ragtime to a much wider audience. Um, as arranged by Marvel and Hamlish, it was a perfect accompaniment to the sense of period and place in the films and was certainly a massive influence on its success. It's another one of those moments where all the planets align to produce the perfect film. Uh, sometimes that happens, uh, all too rarely, sadly. Uh, winning seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. Um, set in 1936 at the height of the Great Depression. It's the story of two grifters, played by Redford and Newman, who set up crime boss and all-round bad guy Doyle Lonigan, the wonderful Robert Shaw, uh, and try and take him for all his money, basically. It's not as complicated as I remember, actually, sitting through it yesterday. Um... And anyway, that summary doesn't really do it justice. Uh, it's a wonderful example, um, how can I explain, of moving the line in screenwriting. Um, it's a trick that the best uh, or the, the most well-written films uh, pull off where sometimes we know more than the character and sometimes we know less than the character. And what it does is it kind of uh, adds a texture to it. If you think of, say, Back to the Future, sometimes we know more than Marty knows and sometimes we know less than Marty knows. And it makes him makes makes the whole kind of... You feel invested in the adventure. Uh, and this, this does this very well. There are things in the film we know, there are things in the film we don't know, and that line sort of moves. Uh, and sometimes the characters know more than us and sometimes they don't. And either way, by the end, actually, we've all been taken in <laughs> to our absolute great delight. Uh, Redford, Newman and George Roy Hill obviously had previous uh, working together on the wildly successful Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Here they are, though, working at the peak of their powers. Uh, Redford, a fine actor and impossibly good looking, and Newman just starting to age wonderfully. He's starting to get a real kind of, um, you know, uh, grown-up pattern to him. And with that, uh, he's still got that irresistible twinkle in his eye, though top draw entertainment that you should go and seek out if you haven't seen it and if you haven't seen it for a while go and look at it again it really holds up um and here's some more of scott joplin's music from the film this is called uh, solace
Solace from uh, The Sting. And uh, I think it was like a gazillion selling soundtrack as well, wasn't it? Pretty sure we had it in the house. Actually, 1974 is turning into the year of Redford. Lalo Schifrin and Redford. Uh, he really was a very big movie star. Uh, we'd had The Sting, uh, and the second Redford we're going to cover is uh, British director Jack Clayton's adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel, The Great Gatsby. Uh, Clayton himself is an interesting character who made several classic films, including Room at the Top and The Innocents, before seeming to get involved in studio politics and seemed to get a reputation for being difficult to work with. Uh, how true that is, I have no idea. Uh, I think he made a few decisions the studios didn't like. I don't think it was a talent thing, uh, which is a shame, because he really was very talented. Um, at the time the film was made, all the ingredients uh, meant there wasn't anything that could possibly go wrong, <laughs> which is usually a sure sign it's going to. Uh, two of the biggest stars in Hollywood, Redford and Mia Farrow as Daisy, and a screenplay by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who'd already won an Oscar for the um, uh, Patton screenplay, and a strong supporting cast, including Bruce Dern and Karen Black. They were all thrown in the mix, and add to that uh, Dougie Slocum's shimmering images. That's a lot of alliteration. <laughs> uh, it couldn't fail, could it? Critics, however, felt it was rather too polite uh, and a rather lifeless interpretation of the book. And although it did reasonable business, it somehow has faded from view. I have to say, um, however, I much prefer it to the Baz Luhrmann, uh, his rather bombastic version from 2013, which kind of seemed to miss the point of the book, really. Um, its reputation has grown, though, in recent times, and it's certainly worth revisiting. My memory of it at the time... Um, is that we had an organist playing before the film every night uh, down the front by the screen. It's a rather sort of unusual flourish for my dad. Uh, it didn't help business, though. No, sir. Released uh, originally in April 1974, it played Uckfield for seven days on November the 10th and managed only 767 admissions. Uh, Nelson Riddle, however, did win an Oscar for adapting the music. so divine tis broken and cannot be mended you must go your way and I must go mine but now that our love dreams have do when I 
it's uh, Kevin Markwick here. Uh, Booker T and the MGs. Green onions. Now, the eagle-eared among you, if there is such a thing, will have noticed that this is not a song from 1974. In fact, I'm not even sure when it's from. I should have had that information ready, shouldn't I? Uh, it is, however, a song used in American Graffiti, a film from 1974. It was George Lucas's second film as director, after THX 1138, and was released uh, in March 1974 in the UK, and played Uckfield uh, seven days on June the 2nd. Things are definitely getting worse, aren't they? I don't know if you've got the whiff of things getting worse going on as we um, make our way through the 1970s. I think we've got the winter of discontent to come yet. Oh, joy! This is why you listen to the radio or podcasts, to cheer yourself up. Uh, there was a miserable 519 admissions, uh, despite being considered a big and successful film out there in the rest of the world. Uh, people of Upfield couldn't give a flying one <laughs> about American graffiti. There are many films that are big hits out in the world that people around here don't give a flying one for. Uh, did you, I mean, please, actually, it would be really lovely to hear from you if you're listening to the show um, or if you listen to the podcast. Did you go to the cinema in the 70s? Did, um, you know, you go to Uckfield in the 70s? That would be really interesting. What are your memories? Did you go and see American Graffiti? Were you one of those 519 people? I don't think I was. I saw it later. Anyway, I do. But what I do remember is that the poster was saying, where were you in 72? Which actually then and now strikes me as odd. Uh, you know, given the pungent whiff of nostalgia the film has and its 1950s-style soundtrack, it's actually only set 10 years before it was made. Um, maybe things had changed so much through the 60s that the past really did feel like a foreign country. I don't know. It's still good fun, though, even if the actors are a little old for the parts they're playing. I suppose it's notable for introducing us to a whole generation of actors, including um, Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Cindy Williams uh, and Harrison Ford. Um, an interesting footnote, though, uh, and probably why I'm actually giving you all this info, is that the UK release was uh, in a double feature with Douglas Trumbull's uh, influential eco-science fiction film Silent Running. Now considered a classic and certainly screened more than American graffiti these days, uh, clearly Universal felt graffiti needed a helping hand and that Silent Running wasn't strong enough to be released as a feature on its own. Strange times. Now, of course, if they want to dump a film, they just release it in May and we have to put up with it for a week or two. <laughs> OK, here's some of uh, Peter Schickel's music. Uh, Schick, Schickelis' music. Uh, from um, Silent Running, and this cue is called The Space Fleet.
part of um, Michael Shigalis's <laughs> score for Silent Running. There was a song as well, wasn't there, by, um, you know, what's her name? The Hippie Lady. What's her name? Oh, you know. Joan Baez. Oh, thank you. Now, one of the most popular live-action Disney films of the period was The Love Bug in 1968, uh, a film about the lovable Volkswagen Beetle called Herbie. In 1974, Disney made a follow-up, imaginatively called Herbie Rides Again, uh, made by the same creative team of Robert Stevenson and uh, writer Bill Walsh. It features a, honestly, cookie-cutter plot about an evil property developer who I believe was Keenan Wynn. He was good Keenan Wynn, wasn't he? He was in um, Kiss Me Kate, Brush Up Me Shakespeare and all that. Um, And they're trying to bully a sweet little old lady played by Helen Hayes out of her home. Uh, Helen Hayes, who you remember from Airport. I believe she won the Academy Award for the little stowaway. Uh, Anyway, I have little or no memory of the film, but I do remember the excitement of a new Herbie film and the wheelbarrows of cash it was expected to take. Uh, And it didn't disappoint, actually. 2,197 admissions in the week, commencing Sunday, August the 26th. So do you think it rained that week, or was Herbie just too strong for the weather? about the next four minutes but it's Herbie the love bug now Herbie now actually it was only about a year ago I watched the first one again I really enjoyed it 55 years old we all locked in cheeky baby Tim on Twitter says that American Graffiti is one of the best, one of his best films ever. Do you mean one of your favourite films or one of George Lucas's best films? Because he didn't make many good ones, let's be honest. There was that one about the Star Wars or something. And that was as good as it got. Anyway. What's next in our trawl through 1974? Oh, one of my absolute favourites now. Uh, As a 12-year-old boy, you can imagine how thrilled I was with The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Uh, Although directed by Gordon Hessler, 
who had mostly made horror films up to that point, uh, it really is remembered as a Ray Harryhausen film. Uh, rather like 42nd Street is a Busby Berkeley film, even though he, he only directed the musical numbers. Uh, Harryhausen's amazing stop-motion effects are what we remember these films for. Of course, if you compare them to modern special effects techniques, they look a bit clumsy and a bit clunky. But at the, you know, at the time, they were an absolute wonder. Um, this was actually towards the end of his career. He would only make uh, two more films after this one. Another Sinbad feature, uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and Clash of the Titans in 1981. But he'd been thrilling audiences with his, his effects since Mighty Joe Young in 1949, his most famous being, um, or some among his most famous, being The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and Jason and the Argonauts, and The Mysterious Island, all of which featured a myriad of fantastic creatures, like the, um, remember the skeletons that came to life, there's like six or seven of them that uh, Sinbad is fighting in uh, Seventh Voyage and all the dinosaurs and minotaurs. And the Golden Voyage of Sinbad was no exception. Um, Barbarella star John Philip Law was Sinbad, and a wonderfully swivel-eyed Tom Baker as the evil Prince Cora, and the beautiful Caroline Munro as uh, Margiana. The real stars, though, are the monsters. Uh, a wooden siren figurehead from his own ship, oh my goodness, comes to life. Uh, and the six-armed idol Carly that Sinbad fights. You remember that's got like six arms and swords. Um, I adored the Sinbad movies. And I suppose, actually, quite rightly, they would have been cast differently today. Um, probably would have to. Of course you would. Um, they were really tremendous fun, though, and totally scary for a young lad. Released in January 1974, it played Uckfield seven days on September the 1st. Uh, 74, 1,413 admissions. Uh, I would definitely have seen it at least twice that week. Uh, you can also see the brilliant quad poster um, for it. It's actually displayed in the cinema today along our corridor of vintage posters. Uh, all the talent on show was aided by a top draw score from Miklos Rosa. <laughs>
Oh, that's proper job, that, isn't it? Uh, we haven't been playing much in the way of proper job, you know, uh, full-on hardcore film score stuff that we do, have done in previous shows. But that one really is, isn't it? Miklos Rosa's score for um, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. It's 1974 already. Well, it's not. It's, 90, it's 2018. Is it 2018? <laughs> My clock's is 2017. But that's not. It's 2017 in 2018. Oh, you know what I'm trying to say. We'll have a break, and when we come back, uh, some are babs, I think. Kevin Markwick. Oakfield FM. Gently backwards and forwards, or side to side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Barbara Streisand and the huge million-selling hit that was the title song from Sidney Pollack's romantic drama uh, The Way We Were, featuring Streisand and our old friend Robert Redford, who we've encountered a lot this year. Uh, as you can imagine, 12-year-old Kev <laughs> probably wasn't too bothered about this one. And I have to actually admit that I've never seen it. I watched a little clip last night. Didn't make me want to see it, if I'm honest. And I like Sidney Pollack films. He made Tootsie, for goodness sake. Probably one of the ten best films ever made. Um, anyway, it didn't prove at all popular here as well, either. In dear old Uckfield. Released in February 1974, it played June the 24th for six days and barely scraped 400 admissions. Which is not very good. It's not looking well, is it? It's not looking good for Uckfield in 1974. And there will be uh, changes afoot later in the decade that would uh, help change that situation a little bit. Now, here we go then. As far as I'm concerned, the big one for 1974. He rode a blazing saddle He wore a shining star his job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. When outlaws rule the West and fear filled the land, Cry went up for a man with guts to take the West in hand. They needed a man who was brave and true, with justice for all as his aim. Then out of the sun rode a man with a gun, and Bart was his name. Yes, Bart was his name. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star His job to offer battle To bad men near and far He conquered fear and he conquered hate He turned dark night into day He made his blazing saddle A torch to light the Fantastic. Stop that holler ganging around. The glorious opening title song from Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles by Frankie Lane. Now, the story goes that Frankie Lane did not know it was a spoof, which is why he does such a great job. There's no irony in his uh, performance whatsoever. According to Mel Brooks, he thought it was a perfectly straightforward song for a Western. I mean, he made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. It's hilarious. Um, 
And this is a film, actually, as far as I can tell, that played more than any other in Uckfield. Um, the film was released in June 1974 and played for seven days on September the 8th, a total of 1,082 admissions. Not especially spectacular, really, uh, considering it would go on to play for years and years to come. Um, does anybody remember that it went out with an Australian sex comedy called Alvin Purple? I thought not. Blazing Saddles is by far Mel Brooks' most successful film, topping uh, the box office in the US that year, grossing a total of $120 million, which is a fair result even today. So adjusted for inflation and stuff, it was massive, uh, which, given that Warner Brothers nearly didn't release it at all, is ironic. Uh, according to Brooks, he said, uh, when we screened it for executives, there were few laughs. The head of distribution said, uh, it's simply too vulgar for the American people. Let's dump it and take a loss. And let's face it, the film, like a lot of Brooks' work, has a rather vaudevillian uh, element of crudity, not least farting cowboys. <laughs> uh, it also has, though, like a lot of Brooks' work, a specific target that needs taking down. Um, bigotry, racism... Uh, whilst on the surface, Blazing Saddles is an affectionate spoof of all the Western tropes, gunfights, bad guys, scared townsfolk and riding off into the sunset. And all of those things work brilliantly on that level. But it's also a biting attack on racism. And racism loses in the film because it's dumb and self-serving. Uh, Mel Brooks understands that the best way to demystify racists, Nazis or any kind of bully, whatever, is to laugh at them. Uh, is there a possibility the film wouldn't get made today? Possibly. Um, certainly the liberal use of the N-word seems to make modern audiences uncomfortable, but consider that the screenwriter, Richard Pryor, one of the great black comedians of all time, uh, urged Brooks not to hold back on using that word. Um, Brooks said, When I thought it was getting a bit too much, Richard said, No, we're writing a story of racial prejudice, that's the word, the only word. It's profound, it's real. And the more we use it from the rednecks, the more the victory of the black sheriff will resonate. So, all that being said, it's still hilariously funny. Uh, the family and I recently went to a screening in London that was followed by uh, a Mel Brooks Q&A. He's a big thing in our house, Mel Brooks. <laughs> the producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein... And the film actually still raises, raises huge laughs. And for my money, actually, it's even more quotable than With No and I, but we're a bit weird. Cleavon Little as Bart exudes a confident charm and Gene Wilder is hilarious as the way cool kid. <laughs> oh, you know, all I can get. Uh, Bart's new best friend. Harvey Corman as the evil Hedy Lamar. <laughs> Hedley Lamar? That's Hedley. But almost stealing the show from under him. Uh, under them all, actually is the genius that was Madeleine Kahn, as the Marlena Dietrich-alike Lily von Stupp. Uh, here she is singing in the Rock Ridge Town Saloon to a group of uh, very excited cowboys. Here I stand, the goddess of desire, set men on fire, I have this power. Morning, noon and night, it's drink and dancing Some quick romancing And then a shower 
stage Though Johnny's constantly surround me They always hound me With one request Who can satisfy their lustful habit? I'm not a rabbit I need some rest I'm tired Sick and tired of love I've had my fill of love From below and above I'm tired of being admired Tired of love uninspired Let's face it, I'm tired I've been with thousands of men Again and again They promised the moon And always too soon, fighters, I'm tired, tired of playing the game, into the crying shame, I'm so tired, God damn it, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Hello, cowboy, what's your name? Tex, ma'am. Tex, ma'am. Tell me, tax man, are you in show business? No. Well, then why don't you get your friggin' feet off? <laughs> Hello, handsome. Is that a ten-gallon hat? Or are you just enjoying the show?
me in my dressing room. <laughs> Don't get me started on that now. Uh, from Blazing Saddles, the greatest film of 1974, and I'll wrestle any man or woman that says differently. It would go on and play forever and ever and ever. And actually, it got a massive lease of life in the 80s. Again, when uh, we put it together with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it ran and ran and ran. Blazing Saddles and Holy Grail became actually a big uh, big national double feature, which is one that uh, we'd come up with ourselves, actually. Okay, uh, I'm running late, as usual, so we'll have a break, and when we come back, some Robin Hood. Kevin Markwick. Well, we folks of the animal kingdom have our own version. It's the story of what really happened in Sherwood Forest. Stop. Sung by Roger Miller. Wasn't he king of the road? Little green apples and all that. From Walt Disney's Robin Hood. Now, this was the first new animated feature released by Disney since the Aristocats in 1970, a whole four years. Released in December 1973, I'm not sure why it took so long to get to Uckfield. It played October Half Term, which in those days was a licence to print money. October the 27th for seven days, uh, 3,527 admissions. Huge! Now, uh, it's not one of Disney's best, it's not bad at all, but, uh, you know, uh, 
They were desperately trying to recreate the success of The Jungle Book, I think, by having bouncy songs sung by Phil Harris. <laughs> but it's fun, nevertheless. Uh, not least Peter Ustinov and Terry Thomas as King John and Sir Hiss, respectively. Hoo-hoo, Hiss. You've hissed your last. Uh, of course, the fact that Disney cartoons took four years to emerge didn't mean that we had nothing else to show during the uh, during the other holidays because the back catalogue was so strong they could be reissued constantly and um, because they were not on tv and home video had yet to be invented um there was still big money in bambi or dumbo or snow white etc uh in fact uh, snow white which was made in 1936 had played at the start of 1974 and in five days brought in 2,198 admissions. Really strong business. So uh, you can see why when these films started appearing on home video, cinema owners felt Disney really had sold off the family silver. I, obviously it was a tide of, you know, that you were never going to stop. But at the time it felt, I think betrayal might be too strong a word, but it was disappointing because it was a whole revenue stream that had suddenly been taken away from us. Obviously that's changed now because cartoons are to a penny. Every holiday has one. Uh, and they, they turn up with uh, alarming and often depressing regularity. Anyway, so here then, in 1974, things were about to take a horrible and rather smutty dark turn. Sunday, November the 3rd, saw the first run of Confessions of a Window Cleaner. What a cheeky chappy, eh? This was the first of the Confessions movies. There would be three more uh, that got progressively seedier and more depressing. I believe it was Confessions of a Pop Performer, Confessions of a Driving Instructor and Confessions of a Holiday Camp. Not a holiday camp you want to go to. I think it was raining. Uh, only only holiday on the buses was marginally more depressing. It would give rise to a whole subgenre of sexual misadventure films such as Ups and Downs of a Handyman, Adventures of a Taxi Driver, Keep It Up Downstairs. Yeah. Let's get laid. That was one of them. Oh dear. The list is frankly endless, actually. And we showed them all. <laughs> Window Cleaner was actually financed by a major studio, Columbia Pictures, and featured cheeky chappy Robin Asquith as the hapless window cleaner and Tony Blair's future father in law, Tony Booth, as his brother in law. Crikey. Anyway, it's not particularly edifying. You can actually watch it on YouTube if you like. I had a quick scan through my, uh, myself this week, so it couldn't be too rude, could it, if it's on YouTube? 
what's odd is that the films are strangely coy, actually. Um, each of the hilarious setups include a very attractive, sexually frustrated woman who can't keep her hands off our hapless window cleaner, but before coitus can actually occur, they're interrupted by the bowler hat-wearing husband returning home unexpectedly, leading to Timmy Lee having to escape bare-arsed out of the window and run up the road in a comedy style Generally, the husband's some old geezer who really would not be married to this lady. Ah, it's kind of sad, really. Uh, it occurred to me that British people must have hated the idea of actual sex. Because <laughs> that would be too real, I suppose. I don't know. It's always, you know, you can laugh at it. That's all right, you can laugh at it. But when it got a bit, you know, actually sexy, um, that was a bit too much. And it wasn't really in an affectionate way. It was more in a painfully embarrassed way. Anyway, there was an audience, though. Uh, 1,399 admissions on November the 3rd for seven days. Uh, the biggest day being Sunday, of course, 441 admissions. It took £677.92. pence. And I'm sorry, it's only going to get worse. Moving on then, Papillon was a surprisingly effective adaptation of the mega-selling novel by uh, Henri Cherrier, uh, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, uh, Oscar-winning director of Patton and the brilliant uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I love Planet of the Apes. Steve McQueen plays Henri, sentenced to life on the terrifying French penal colony of Devil's Island. Uh, the film mostly follows his endless attempts to escape and all the punishment that brings, including long stretches in solitary confinement. Not necessarily the best subject for cinema. There is a long sequence in it, isn't there, where he's in solitary confinement. But somehow it works. Uh, he's befriended by the terrified and lonely Lois, played by... Uh, or Louis, sorry, <laughs> Lois. It's not Superman. Uh, played by Dustin Hoffman. A really sad performance, actually, by Dustin Hoffman, I thought. It's really sad at the end when... Um, McQueen sort of floats off into the sea and leaving him behind. Sort of echoes of Midnight Cowboy, really. Only Hoffman's not dead. Um, released in July 1974, it played upfield on September the 15th for seven days, did okay. 1,101 admissions. And the score was by the great Jerry Goldsmith.
A cue from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Papillon. Uh, a 1974 film, of course, because we're doing 1974. It's Kevin Markwick. On a troll. I was going to say trail, and then I changed it to draw. A troll through the 70s, week by week. We're up to 1974 this week. Uh, there's 13 shows. Like I've said before, you work it out, because I haven't yet. <laughs> Unless we can stretch time. Uh, talking of time, uh, I'm pretty much out of it. I've got one more break to do. Uh, I've had to miss out about three films, although actually none of them played Upfield, so technically it's not the end of the world, but I should mention them. Um, Parallax View, it's a shame I didn't have time for that one, and Godfather Part Two, two absolutely amazing films in 74 that never played in Upfield. Don't ask me why, because I don't know, because it's in the past. And everyone's dead, Dave. <laughs> so I'll do a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll have a bit of David Essex, and then it'll all be over bar the shouting. Kevin Markwick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, press that one, look. David Essex, Stardust. One of the biggest pop stars in the UK at the time. And being a pop star, that means you have to put him in films. Work for Elvis, why not David Essex? Essex had been in uh, That'll Be The Day the year before. A rather dour film about the young and struggling Jim McLean, whose life is going nowhere. But the end sees him leave his wife and baby at the end. The sequel, Stardust, this one, takes up his story and his rise to fame and ultimately turning into a bit of a douchebag. It's kind of a familiar tale, really, isn't it? We've seen it many times. Did all right. Directed by Michael Apted. I've got the book here. I'm looking at the actual, actual book. Sunday, November the 24th for seven days. 1167 admissions. 567 pounds and 50 pence. Put the book down, Kev. I don't think they did I'm going to make you a star in it, did they? Is this I'm going to make you a star? Yeah, it is. 
Anyway, it would hit even higher heights a couple of years down the line when uh, Essex was even more famous and he would make, and uh, we put it in a double feature. Stardust and that'll be the day together. I remember the cues now and all the girlies outside. And some boilies too. Okay, that's pretty much it. Thank you for listening. That was 1974, a bit raggedy in places. But, you know, it's done with love. That's the thing. And next year is 1975 already. I think I was probably going to get some spots any minute now. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. It's been lovely to have you, and I'll see you next week. I love you all. And uh, tune in and listen to the podcast. Don't forget the podcast, because that's important.